0: We've got a great worker for peace as today's Spirit in Action guest. His name is Chuck Fager, and he was on this show almost seven years ago, way back in the first year of this program. Because I'm Quaker, I have a lot of Quaker activist friends and acquaintances. So they are featured on this program, certainly more than the pitiful percentage that Quakers represent in the USA and in the world. As such, I'm hesitant to drag back Quaker guests at the risk of boring my non-Quaker listeners, but I am very sure that what Chuck Fager has to say will be of great interest to everyone concerned about war, peace, and justice, which is why I figure you are listening to Spirit in Action. Chuck Fager has just completed 11 years of service at a place called Quaker House in Fayetteville, North Carolina, home of what I think is the U.S.'s largest army base, Fort Bragg. Back in 1969, a young soldier drafted for the Vietnam War showed up at a Quaker meeting 90 minutes north of Fayetteville, asking for help in applying as a conscientious objector. The response was to set up Quaker House right next to the belly of the war beast, where those in the military could find a supportive and sympathetic ear, and to provide peacemaking efforts through education, advocacy, and counseling. Chuck Fager has been doing the demanding and dedicated job of director of Quaker House for 11 years and is full of first-hand stories of facing the individuals in and the structure of the war machine. Chuck joins us by phone from North Carolina. Chuck, welcome back after all these years to Spirit in Action.
2: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.
0: Have you found yourself changing in terms of your attitudes about the military because you've spent this 11 years right there in a military-based town where it pervades the entire atmosphere, and you have working with a lot of people in the service and out?
2: Well, I've certainly learned a lot. Now, I was raised in a military family, and I came pretty close to first going to the Air Force Academy, and then later on being an Air Force officer from ROTC. So this atmosphere, in many ways, was not a stranger to me. At the same time, over these years, it's been brought home to me pretty concretely what a heavy cost our wars have imposed on the soldiers and the families who are doing this stuff involved in making these wars. And the, the cost is really very high. And there's all sorts of institutional forces that downplay it. Around here, it's hard to downplay, even though the army works very hard at doing that. But it's just burst out of their efforts to downplay it again and again, such in terms of suicides and in terms of domestic violence and that sort of thing. Those things have come home to me in a way that I wasn't aware of when I got here. And they're kind of a burden. The Bible is right. You reap what you sow. And our military as an expression of the spirit that's in control of our country. It's not just a matter of some bloodthirsty men sitting around a table or in barracks at Fort Bragg or even around tables at the Pentagon. This is an expression of the spirit that really pervades our culture, the spirit of war. These people go out and carry out these fantasies of domination or whatever it is, and they pay a terrible price. I mean, of course, there are hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq and Afghanistan whose lives have been shattered by what they've done. But they have not escaped, even if they have come back seemingly in one piece by large. And just how high that cost is, is something that I'm much more aware of than I had. It's not like I was unaware of it, but there's a difference between hearing about it on NPR and dealing with it here more concretely. And as this has happened, I've also become much more aware of how, over the time I've been here, the public, American public at large, has become more and more, I guess I just have to say, oblivious to the whole thing. I realized recently there's two sets of 99%, 1% divisions in our society that I know of. One of them is the one that Occupy Wall Street raised up, and which I completely agree with, the 1% at the top and the 99% underneath that. But the other one is that one percent of our population, about three million people, is directly involved in the military. The other 99 percent, to a pretty great degree, to an almost completely total degree, is culturally, socially distanced from the military and what it does, and, and the impact that what the doing that has on the people in it. And that 99 percent is more and more oblivious as time goes on. It seems to me. And that's problematic in all sorts of ways.
0: And this is true even if they count themselves as strong supporters of the military, right?
2: Yes, because it's very easy for people to be supportive at a great distance, supportive in the abstract. And we know plenty of politicians whose support for warlike policies does not include anything like direct involvement or direct involvement by people in their family. I'll give you an example of this. We're talking in late 2012. So a new Congress has been elected. hasn't been shaken down yet. But in the current Congress, it's just wrapping up. My information is that there are 80 veterans in the House and the Senate. That's of 535 members, 80. And that's the lowest percentage of veterans since before World War II. And what's the significance of that? There's probably a lot of significance, but one that leaps out at me is that Congress and the White House, too, for that matter, is the board of directors, essentially, for War America Incorporated. And then War America Incorporated is an outfit, it's an undertaking. It's an operation that has an annual budget of well over a trillion dollars. And if you imagine a trillion-dollar corporation, the board of directors of that corporation had better know what the business is and know something about the business in order to do a responsible job of providing oversight and management. Well, when you've got only 80 out of 535 members of your board that have any direct connection with the business that your corporation is in, that board is going to probably give pretty lousy oversight and supervision of this big whatever business you're in. And that's my experience, that the military... Largely, gets what it wants out of Washington because there's fewer and fewer people there that know anything about what they're doing, and so they can pull a wool over their eyes. They can go around them, and they do it all the time, and they still get all this money.
0: Do you count it as true? The thing I heard recently was that the Republicans are trying to spend more on the military than the military wants, than maybe the Joint Chiefs or whoever at that level has requested. Congress, at least the Republican faction in Congress, is trying to spend more money on the military. Is that also a sign of being out of touch with the military, They throwing money where maybe it's not going to be particularly useful?
2: Well, that's sort of a complicated thing, and I, I'm hesitant to talk too much about particular political parties any more than necessary, because the disease of militarism, the spirit of war that pervades it, it covers everybody and all the parties. The war budget is at its all-time high this year under a Democratic administration. And even though there were plans, or voiced plans anyway, to add a whole lot of money to it by the group that wanted to take over, Even if that doesn't happen, the war budget is still going to grow. They say they're planning to make cuts, but what they were planning to cut is the rate of increase. And so I suppose that's a real thing. There are people around here in Fayetteville, the Chamber of Commerce, as well as people directly involved in military contracting. They have been in a panic for months about the possibility that there might be some cuts at the end of 2012 some of the automatic cuts, that those might actually happen. And they've been lobbying feverishly, along with big war contractors from all around the country, to stop anything like that from happening. Usually, these folks get what they want. So even with a Democratic administration continuing, it's likely that there's not going to be much cuts. And the idea that the other folks wanted to spend a whole bunch of money that the military didn't really want... That's a little complicated because the White House can tell people in the Pentagon,
1: "You're going to keep (laughs) quiet."
2: Yeah, how much they want? Really, the military and the corporations that supply them—they always want more. (laughs) They get two trillion more; they'll take it. We had a a governor's race here in North Carolina, and one of the candidates came to town Fayetteville a couple months ago, and in the course of a discussion, he got to talking about the importance of military contracting in North Carolina. And he said, in North Carolina, we have 100 counties. Of these 100 counties, he said that 87, this is from memory, so it might be off by one or two, but 87 counties had military contracts in them. And North Carolina is a pretty big state. It's more than 400 miles across. So 87 counties have a a direct stake in terms of jobs and somebody's business in this war machine. And North Carolina, as of my understanding, is relatively... It's like an awful lot of states, most of the states. So all this money that they're trying they shower on the military, it's spread around widely. This is not a new disclosure. This is spread around very widely. And so there's many, many members of Congress. There are many, many communities that have a direct stake in keeping this machine turning and well-oiled with enormous amounts of our taxpayers' money that could be going for lots of other things, like fixing those bridges so they don't fall into the Mississippi River, and education, and health care. So many things that are under very serious pressure, and are regardless how the election turned out. In fact, one of my little Hobby horses, once I get retired here, is going to be raising my voice however I'm able to, to try to protect what remains of our safety net, particularly in Social Security. I mean, I'm old enough for Social Security now, and the politicians tell me, don't worry, your Social Security is safe, Fager. But having told you that, we want you to go along with screwing your kids and grandkids out of it. And, in fact, I made a poster that I had on my Facebook page, and I'm probably going to be faxing to our senators pretty soon. So you tell me I can keep my Social Security as long as I go along with you guys screwing my kids and grandkids out of it. How big a scumbag do you think I am? (laughs) Well, here's a clue. Not that big. I'm not that big a scumbag.
0: One of the things you've certainly run into because you've been involved with Quaker House right by Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, working there for the 11 years. Number one, you've been in a tiny minority, I think, for the region, and maybe I'm misestimating. That's about right. (laughs) Tiny minority? Okay. Being that you're part of this tiny minority, I'm assuming that you see the vets who are coming out who are damaged, who aren't getting the support that they deserve after having served our country, after putting their lives on the line and having been promised. So, at the same time that you're working for their welfare The machine that they're part of, I think you'd like to see disassembled or reduced in spending or maybe very significantly reduced in size. Are you a total heretic as far as that area is concerned? Do people stand with stones ready to stone you when you walk down the streets of Fayetteville?
2: Well, not entirely. We've had a motto, a slogan, since I got here, and we've repeated it at every possible occasion, and it is, yes to the troops and no to the wars. And there are people who always say, oh, but you can't say your support to troops unless you support what they're doing over there. Well, I just say, oh, well, yes, we can. We can certainly support the troops and not the wars. We do that every day. You want to see our track record? Here's our phone records. and we Talk to our counselors and we'll tell you stories about the people we've worked with. We're supporting them in ways that we think of as moving them towards peaceful options. I mean, people come to us. We don't go out and propagandize for them. And we give them good information. We don't tell them what to do, what kind of decisions to make. But we work with soldiers and their families all the time in supportive ways. That's an important thing to say, which has gained a certain kind of respect. Nobody's going to vote for me to run for mayor. But in the sense of having kind of established a foothold in some way. Now, there are still people who don't buy it. There's still people who, who get their heads full of crazy notions. In fact, you know, just the other day, the phone rang here at Quaker House. I picked it up. And a lady was, you know, I said, this is Quaker House. And a lady said, you, call, you all are Quakers, I got a question for you. How come you scratch out in God we trust from your money? I said, what? I got a guy come in here and he said, you all scratch out in God we trust off your money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you Quakers do. <laughs> I i you no, know, I just said, sorry, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. <laughs> and for anybody who's out there listening today, Quaker House, we do not scratch and We trust all of our money. Whether we would have put it on there if it was up to us in the beginning, fifty some years ago, that's a different question, but we do not do that. <laughs> Where did she get that idea? I have no idea. So there's there are crazy notions that get spread around. But still we do what we can and and sometimes it gets a little paradoxical. An incident that sticks in my mind. I knock at the door one day here, I went to the door and there was this guy standing there in his camouflage uniform, several stripes. A sergeant came in and sat down, and he was—he looked kind of worried, and he looked very confused. And I had the feeling after we talked for a few minutes that maybe the longest march he was ever on was to come walk down Hillside Avenue for a couple of blocks and turn up our walk and go up our steps. I say that was a long walk because he'd been in the Army for 10 years. He was Latino by background, and the Army had worked for him and he had been completely loyal to the army so he would never have thought about having anything to do with a dodgy suspicious outfit like Quaker House and he went to Iraq like they told him to do but while he was there his Humvee got batted around by an IED or some kind of a bomb or something and he suffered what they call a traumatic brain injury or TBI and most TBIs they don't show visibly there's no cuts no scars no visible wounds, and sometimes it take a while to manifest. He finished his tour in Iraq, came back to Fort Bragg, and was assigned to his unit. Where, as I say, he'd been, he been—he was halfway to being able to retire, and then the TBI stuff started kicking in, and he couldn't. It started messing up his head. He couldn't think straight, and he couldn't visualize things very well, and he, he—he couldn't do his work well. He went to his superiors about this and they said go see the army doctors and the army doctors gave him pills, tranquilizers and stuff like the antidepressants and so on, which that wasn't really his problem and they just made it worse, it made him more groggy and foggy and evidently a great many units in the army here have very short patients. Very little patience for people being unable to do what they're supposed to do, and before long they had essentially turned on him. You're you're no good. You're a burden to us. They talk about the army family. We take care of our own. Yada yada yada. And all of a sudden, this guy, after 10 years of completely loyal service, he's not only foggy in his head because of this injury. Now he's being told that he's worthless and a burden to his unit by people that he had been loyal to. And what was he going to do? He began to think that he was hurt so bad that he might need to look into the see if he could apply for a medical discharge and, and get some benefits. They tell him you you wouldn't qualify, don't even think about it. Well, he couldn't help think about it because he was hurting and disoriented and having a very hard time and getting badgered and pressured by his superiors and so where was he going to get help that was outside the army something that he felt he could trust and eventually. I don't even know how our name came up, and he came to see us. And it's interesting that when he came to see us, he wasn't really asking how he could get out of the Army. He was more asking, how can I get the Army to respond to my actual needs and problems? He knew that was probably going to head in the direction of a medical discharge. But they were, again, they were fobbing him off and pushing him aside. And so I worked with him to explain different ways he could put pressure with on the army from inside to get some response. And finally, he left. And he was very grateful. And I don't know what happened because we have to let people take the initiative. And if, if he got what he needed from us and didn't call us back, we're not going to chase people. We have to be cautious about that. But that was one where here was somebody who had been in the Army for 10 years, completely a completely loyal, productive soldier until he wasn't in the Army, just wanted to discard him and push him out the door, not dealing with his disabilities or with any kind of responsibility they have to him. That's happening all the time in the Army nowadays, all the time, all the time. And it's easy to point at military higher-ups and say, you guys are insensitive or you're indifferent and arrogant or whatever. And those things are true enough sometimes. But really, this is an expression of attitudes that are culture-wide. Americans, and as far as I know, this cuts across party lines and most cultures I know of, subcultures. Americans like to have a very structured and limited relationship to our military, the 99% non-military types. We like parades, we like memorials, we like medals and bands and stuff like that, ceremonies. We don't want to see these soldiers who are messed up. Keep them away from us, and we don't really want to pay for them either. Because if we did, the budget for the Veterans Administration and related services would be several times larger than it is. There's just so many people who have been damaged by this, and the military is under pressure to cut their costs. And one way they do that institutionally is to push people out of the military in ways that deprive them. Of benefits that they would otherwise qualify for. And the, and it's not a fair fight because people in, who have been in the military for a long time and know the system, they know ways to do this, whereas soldiers, particularly soldiers who are hurt, a great many of them have an awful hard time figuring out how to defend themselves. We do a lot of work at Waker House helping soldiers find ways to struggle more effectively for things that they should get on the way out of the military. And there's plenty of work... <laughs> even when people do get out of the military, to try to gain some kind of benefits. Uh, the cost of, of our wars in, in that way has just been enormous, and it's been fobbed off on the people who are least able to bear
0: it. I think that's a sign of a good capitalist society, right? I'm afraid so. If you can make it work for you, then whoever has to bear you know, it's, it's survival of the fittest in some sense.
2: Yeah, I guess so. It's an awful thing to see up close. It, it wears at you over time
0: which is, of course, part of the reason why maybe you need to leave Fayetteville, North Carolina, the frontline contact with the military there. It's got to warn on you. One of the things that maybe we can count as a victory is the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. I'm pretty sure over the years, some of the people coming to Quaker House for advice, consultation, information, people calling the GI rights hotline, They're saying, okay, so my sexual orientation, what do I do about this? What are my legal rights? How has that changed in the years? Is that a ray of light in your experience there, or how does that look to you?
2: The short answer is, oh, yes. Let me give you a little background. I've lived in a number of different places, and I got to Fayetteville at the end of 2001. One of the many things that I noticed that was troublesome was that Fayetteville was the most closeted town I'd ever lived in. There are plenty of gay people here. In fact, on our street, there are a number of gay couples. And yet, there was a protocol. It was all hidden in plain sight. It was all invisible, but right there. I, and there was never anything like gay pride, or uh, there were no, hardly any mentions of it in our newspaper. I mean, it was just, gosh, it was like living in a solid fog all the time. And I didn't quite know how to navigate it myself because you have to respect people's decisions that they make in that regard. And yet, well, in fact, I wrote an article for our, uh, an op-ed for our local paper arguing for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And to my knowledge, that was the only article published in that paper making that case. <laughs> when it was a matter of intense debate within the military and in Congress. And yet this curtain wall of silence So we were very glad to see it. And we have to, sometimes I've had to explain it with some care and say, look, I'm for peace, and yes, I would like to see the military scaled back and even dismantled if possible. But I'm also for equality and justice. And as long as we have a military, I'm in favor of equality and justice inside it as well as outside. And the same way that if I'd been here 50 years ago, I would have supported desegregating the military even though you could make the case, if you desegregate the military, you'll make the military stronger because there's lots of soldiers of color whose, whose abilities are not being well used because of segregation. And that's true. And similarly, there's lots of gay and lesbian soldiers whose skills and abilities weren't being made good use of in the military because of being closeted or because of being pushed out because of who they were and so on. And so you let them be open about it the way the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell made possible, then the military will be a better military. And you know what? That's true. (laughs) I can't get around it. But I just say, well, I still would like to see the military reined in and dismantled if possible. And so this is, a, this is a quandary we're just going to have to live with because I am not going to go along with keeping people in this closet. Well, when it was the repeal, September 20th, 2011, once Congress acted, Congress passed the repeal, uh, I think in December, November or December of 2010. And so it was coming for a number of months and the army had a very deliberate effort to make the repeal a nothing event. There were no ceremonies, there was no discussion. It was just, again, this kind of like hidden in plain sight. Here at Quaker House, we said, I'm sorry, but we're not going along with this. This is a big deal. So we organized a press conference and we had a celebration. Then we had a panel of some local clergy that were sympathetic and so on to mark this event. And I'm glad we did, because it deserved to be marked, because it's a big change in a lot of ways. I'll mention two. One is that within the military there's been a very wide infiltration of a very hardcore fundamentalist kind of Christianity. And this hardcore fundamentalist Christianity is not only fire-breathingly war-mongering, but it's also heavy-duty homophobic. And in fact, the uh, chaplains and other religious people who are aligned with all this were issuing dire prophecies about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is going to mean the end of the military. In fact, I wrote a blog post because the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution, I think, in 2009, 2010. Said, if if you repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it'll lead to the collapse of the U.S. military. All us God-loving Christians, we won't let our kids join up anymore and all the good Christian soldiers will leave and yada, yada, yada. I wrote a blog post that said, Really? I mean, I've been working all this time to try to roll back the military and the militarism, and you're telling me that all it will take is a repeal, "Don't ask, don't tell," and the whole thing will collapse. <laughs> okay, I'll take it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but of course, that, that collapse—oh,
0: of didn't course happen. it didn't. Oh no. Too bad. <laughs> oh, Well. <laughs> so, but the
2: significance of that, though, is that it was a big blow to that kind of religious sentiment within the military a discrediting blow. They said the sky would fall. sky hasn't fallen. It's not the end of the story. This, these folks are still around and still causing trouble. But in the same way that when the military turned against segregation, in lots of places across the South, there were lots of preachers who had been preaching segregation as God's will who had to learn a new vocabulary. And it's going to take some time, but there's a lot of Christian preachers in this town, still this military town now, so they're going to have to learn a new vocabulary. So the impact on Homophobic forces in the military was important. The other thing that repeal of Don't Ask made possible, it opened closet doors in Fayetteville, the city and culture of Fayetteville. And one way this manifested that was very concrete for me was that there is a small congregation of gay-oriented Christians, many of whom have military connections, that formed and kind of came, became visible in the wake of the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And we worked with them some at Quaker House to try to help them get going. It's been a good experience getting to know them. And, and even though it was legal to have a gay-oriented church before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, it wouldn't have happened. And it didn't happen because... This is an army town and even people who are not in the army depend on, lots of them depend on the army. And so the closet doors were nailed shut and now they don't have to be anymore. And There were a significant number of folks who were either in or close to the military, who even though they're gay as can be, they were devoted Christians. They wanted Jesus, they wanted church, they wanted to pray, they wanted to sing. And so they've got it now. And this is a change that has come in the wake of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. even though that church is small and still getting started. That's a significant evolution and opening in the larger religious setting of Fayetteville, and, and I, I'm hoping that similar things are happening at other large, around other large places.
0: And does this change in any way undercut, shall we say, the business that you do at Quaker House or the GI Rights Hotline? Does it diminish some of the inpouring of people who need help?
2: It hasn't significantly. We didn't really get that many people calling about what to do about don't ask, don't tell. And I'm not sure why, but the numbers were just pretty small. People, I think, were making their own accommodations as best they could. And and lots of them were learning how to live in the closet. But our traffic has continued because we, we deal with a lot of different what we call discharge issues. So that's held up pretty well.
0: If you just tuned in, you're listening to Spirit in Action, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production website, NorthernSpiritRadio.org. For seven years now, we've been producing these programs, and six and a half years ago, I spoke with Chuck Faker who's ending his term of 11 years working at Quaker House in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can find that interview and many more via my website, nortonspiritradio.org. You can go listen, you can download, you can find where to connect up with us on iTunes, etc. You can also find links to our guests, like to Quaker House and to the GI Rights Hotline and so on, via northernspiritradio.org. There's also a place to leave comments, and we really like to have your feedback you can also make a donation via our website, again, Nordenspiritradio.org. Go there and find all those resources. Again, Chuck Fager is our guest today. He's now finishing up 11 years of service in Fayetteville, North Carolina, military town. Fort Bragg's there. Quaker House has been a witness outreach to soldiers for 44 years and counting there's one thing I asked you earlier, and I don't know that I really heard the corner of the question that I wanted to answer is, have your attitudes towards military people changed? And this question comes from me because I'm not face-to-face. I'm part of that 99% that you mentioned that are not connected with military. Right. I have strong pacifist leanings. I have strong anti-war leanings. That doesn't mean I don't respect people. I, I attempt to, but I think in some ways my attitudes are superficial. You've had to give up any superficiality of attitudes towards people in the military. There's a temptation, perhaps, the same kind of thing that's done towards homosexuals. You know, you can hate the sin but love the sinner. So maybe I can love the soldier but hate the sin of war. Has that changed for you, or is that a dichotomy that you still carry within you? Has that been at all ameliorated or modified?
2: Maybe it has in some way, but here's the way that I would try to express it. In a lot of my presentations, I have a diagram that I use, and it's a circle with a number of kind of spokes in it like a wheel, and, and I call it the wheel of war. Only it's like a merry-go- like a playground merry-go-round. It's got handles, and people push on the handles, and it builds up speed. And there are many hands pushing on these handles in our society, on the wheel of war, people making money on it. People who believe in warlike solutions to problems in the world. People who are telling stories and doing entertainment business built around that. Universities making money doing war research. This wheel goes round and round and it's developed over time an enormous momentum. And if you were to get on the merry-go-round like that and it's spinning around and you let go of the bar, you fly off. Or if you were running around and pushing on it and then you decided you didn't want to make it go anymore, but you didn't let go, you'd be dragged along. There's also a theological framework for this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about principalities and powers as kind of, it's it's like uh, armies of demons that have gained influence and even control over visible parts of the world and groups of people. And even though that's an ancient metaphor from a long-gone culture, that idea, along with the momentum of this wheel of war, has become very real to me. And the spirit of war and the wheel of war, it sweeps up people. It sucks them in, and it uses them for its own purposes, and it, and it destroys many, and it destroys other people with them. While people are still responsible for their own actions, it's also, I, I mean, I see very well how many pressures there are on people which push them in this direction the people who are joining the army here or who come in having joined the army somewhere else, so many of them at the lower ranks, you see a combination of two forces and the the combination, the balance of the forces varies with circumstances. And the two forces are on the one side, family and cultural imagery and inheritance. An awful lot of people who join the military and come here are children and close relatives of People who joined the military in previous generations. This is part of their family heritage. This is what we do. Across the street from me, we have an officer, special forces officer, who's now a general. He, he got a star a year or two ago. He's got two sons that have grown up right across the street from Quaker House, and one of them finished high school last spring. And guess where he went? He went to West Point. Easy enough to see why. And there's lots of people like that. Not everybody gets to go to West Point. Most people go down to their recruitment office and sign up, or they go off to college and get into ROTC. So that's one side. And then the other side is the Army is a job in a time when jobs are scarce for you know big chunks of the population. And that's still true, even though things have been getting slowly a little bit better than they were in the, the terrible crash. And even before the crash... Back in 2007, 2008, even before the crash, there were big chunks of our population, especially people of color and immigrants for whom the crash had already happened. For those people, the military offers a way up. I kind of embody both in some ways because my late father grew up on a little farm in southeastern Kansas. and He told me about pushing a plow behind a mule at the end of the 30s, beginning of the 40s. And he saw the occasional airplane flying over. And he yearned after that airplane. And when World War II came along, that became his opportunity to escape from the farm. And he went and joined the Air Force and studied hard and got to be a pilot. And he was a pilot in the Air Force for 20 years ago. And I grew up there in the Air Force setting. And I had that impulse. I almost went to the Air Force Academy. And then I was in ROTC for a while in college. I'm not an example of the kind of I mean, in the mid-60s, when I was finishing college, I had lots of options. Peace Corps, Vista, things like that. In fact, I wound up going off to the Civil Rights Movement. So I I didn't feel poor and without prospects. I got to feel poor later. (laughs) Here at Fort Bragg, over the last 10 years, I've seen so many people who have done terrible things in the military. And they've done terrible things for very familiar easy-to-understand reasons that are easy, familiar to me and easy for me to understand. So that reigns in any tendency I may have to judge them. I've been very lucky. I ran into Quakers. I got to work under Dr. King and learn about nonviolence, so on and so forth. But with uh, the little role, of the, I mean, a little bit different role of the dice, who knows what it might have been like. So I've seen lots of people here who uh, I guess I feel a certain kind of, I don't want to say exactly solidarity, but connection. And yet at the same time, I'm still very strongly anti-war. But it's not, it, it makes it harder to sustain simple notions, or at least what I think of as simple notions, that there's a few bad guys in Washington. If we change the faces, then we could take care of this. If that worked, it would have worked. That doesn't mean i i mean i'm I'm not against worrying about who's in Washington and what they're doing, but I think the number of hands that are pushing this wheel of war are pushing from many, many other places in Washington, and the momentum that drives it comes from many other places and so to focus on one aspect of it like that, especially an aspect that we have much less leverage on than we think we do usually. I think, makes us prime candidates for feeling frustrated. So I'm trying to circle back to your question. I feel a great sense of connection to these folks here. In fact, there was one time I sat in on a talk given by a fellow named Tony Lagarenas, who had been an interrogator in Iraq. He had been a torturer. He hadn't started out to be a torturer. He had been trained at the interrogation school, and he had been taught how to interrogate people according to the rules and under international law. When he got to Iraq, he was told by his higher-ups to do illegal things, and he did them, and it was kind of like smoking crack or taking heroin. It got to be sort of addictive. And as he talked, I watched him and listened to him, and I got this very unsettled feeling because he was so familiar He said he joined the army for three reasons. One, to get some money to pay off his college loans. I could identify with that. He said he wanted to learn a foreign language. And even though I never did really learn a foreign language, I can relate to that. And he did. They taught him Arabic. And he wanted to sort of travel and have adventures. Well, they sent him to Iraq. And so he achieved all his objectives. But it cost him his mind. He had a mental breakdown. By the time he finished his, what he, was, what he was doing there, ate away at him until it pretty much completely undermined his psychological stability. And he wound up getting a medical discharge from the Army. And he was kind of trying to atone for the things he'd been involved in. And it was, he was having a very hard time. And I sat there and I, I said, this was, he was the guy next door. He could have been me 20 some years ago. And that was very hard for me because I like to try to, I don't know, I want to be different from the people who are doing the terrible things. One of the guys who really was pretty much a ringleader at Abu Ghraib, a guy named Charles Grainer, who was—he may be out of prison now, but he was sentenced to prison for a long time because of all the torturing he did. And, and he worked in state prisons before he joined the army and evidently a pretty stone sadist. I don't have any trouble distancing myself from him. I'm not like that. But this other guy, Tony Lagarenas, could have been me. Or lots of people I've known. And that was very unsettling. Because that's what this war, this wheel of war, the spirit of war does. It takes people who are not bad people, or no more bad than I am, no worse than I am. And it turns them into monsters. And there's been lots of people who have spoken about that kind of experience, having that kind of experience. We weren't like this before we came over here to Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: I did want to ask you something about that, because I had a guest recently who has written a book about moral injury. It was only a couple years ago that I think the Veterans Administration started recognizing it as a particular diagnosis, moral injury. Have you seen much of that? It sounds like you're describing a case right there of moral injury. How widespread is it? People are used to thinking of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as the thing that leads to violence and suicide, etc.
2: Well, we're talking about something that seems to me to be hard to measure. And so in our statistics-obsessed culture, they want numbers, and I don't know numbers. But I totally believe in this. I believe a great many people who have great difficulty readjusting, and this was true. I think yeah, go back to Vietnam, go back to the Civil War. I read a book last year about the Civil War, about how many people came home from the Civil War. They went off the Civil War full of patriotic vim and vigor, and they came home a wreck. They had a phrase for it then, which has really stuck with me. They call it a "soldier's heart," and so and so was suffering from soldier's heart. I like that phrase because I think it goes beyond physical or just simply psychological. I I think I see a great deal of moral injury. Sometimes that's turned in on itself. We had a tough time at Quaker House a couple of years ago over a plan to have what they call the hero's homecoming for Vietnam veterans, the mayor decided to have a whole week-long celebration for Vietnam veterans, and he made a big mistake. He invited us to be part of it. I actually was invited to have a private lunch with him, and he said, you know, you've got a piece of this story, and I said, well, yes, sir, Mr. Mayor, we do. We were here, not me personally, but Quaker House, but it's going to be tough, Mr. Mayor. It's going to be controversial because Jane Fonda came to town, and he said, don't worry about it. That's fine. It's just part of the story. Well, that wasn't fine. When I got up at a planning meeting and mentioned Jane Fonda, people went berserk, and Fox News picked it up, and before you know it, we're getting thousands of evil, awful, terrible comments. What that brought home to me was how many still, how many surviving Vietnam veterans are just eaten up with unfinished kind of moral business with regard to Vietnam. And then, of course, you've got other wars since then, and now you've got Iraq and Afghanistan. And what how do people cope with what was done in Iraq? Whether they did it personally themselves or were behind the scenes or just shooting back at somebody who was shooting at them. We went in there, we wrecked the country, killed all these people, made millions more refugees, loosed forces that are still wreaking havoc. Like for instance, on the Iraqi Christian community that's ancient and has been decimated and the ones who survived are mostly getting out of the country as fast as they can. Saddam Hussein left him alone. So that adds up to what you could call moral injury. How do you come to terms with that? I don't know, but I think I see it around me a lot. Yes, I do. And I have had conversations with people in counseling settings where I have said to them, you know, we don't tell people what to do here. You have to make your own decisions because it's your butt on the line, not mine. And yet I want to depart from that a little bit to say that if your conscience tells you that you should do something or that you really shouldn't do something else, I can tell you, you ought to pay attention to your conscience because you have to live with your conscience as long as your mind is still working. You'll be in the army for, who knows, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years maybe, but then you'll be out. But your conscience, you're gonna carry that around with you as long as you're sentient. And you better be careful about what you put on it, what you allow to get a get burden with. And I think that lots of people accepted a rationale that the people in Washington sent us over here to do this and that, and then to follow a particular mission and follow particular orders. And if in the following of those orders we do these terrible, unspeakable things, that's not our problem. It's all on the people in Washington who gave us the orders. Except it's not true. It is on the people in Washington, but it's not just on them. It's also on the people who pulled the triggers.
0: We're getting near the end of our time together, Chuck. I still want to step back and take an overview of this entity called Quaker House and what it's doing there in Fayetteville. And particular, eleven years you're there. You went there shortly after nine one one. The war in Afghanistan was going full tilt. You were there already in place before the war in Iraq happened. Theoretically, the war in Iraq has been ratcheted down. Theoretically, we have a time when we're going to be getting out of Afghanistan. What's your experience of the victories and maybe the losses that you've had? What has been the high points, low points maybe, of your experience there at Quaker House?
2: Well, as far as uh, losses or defeats goes or the opposite of victories, we're here to put an end to war and we have not succeeded. We haven't even come close. And I need to remind myself of that. On the other hand, the fact that we're still here is probably the most significant and that we're going to continue. And that's that, that's a success. I'm not sure about victory, but that's a success because that's what we're called to do. I think the Quaker part of Quaker House is really key. When we started in 1969, there were lots of similar kinds of organizing projects around military bases, and they're all gone. Quaker House is really the only one that's survived over the long term, and I think that's because we were a Quaker project. We really are a manifestation, concrete manifestation, of the Peace Witness on the part of a lot of individual friends and meetings around the country. If they didn't think we were related to what they understand the Peace Witness to be, we wouldn't be here. Small and relatively insignificant as Quakers are in the grand scheme of things, we have some work to do, and Quaker House is one of the pieces of that work. When I look at the situations we've been through, I think we had some special help getting through here. Not an accident that it's the Quaker project that managed to survive so long. There are a lot of projects that get sort of secularized and they get their own, they can become their own thing. And if they had a host church or church community, they can get distanced from that. I don't think that's happened at the Quaker house, not in my time. And I hope it doesn't because uh, Quakers are a small and relatively insignificant group, but we've got our work to do, and this is a piece of it. And I think it's important in the grand scheme of things that we do our work, not not to get puffed up about it, but not to let it go either until it's done. And we're far from being done here. So as far as victories and defeats, one thing we've done, we've been a voice here in this community raising issues like the evil of torture. And Fort Bragg, or units at Fort Bragg, have a lot of involvement in what I call the torture industrial complex. We don't have time to go into detail about it, but a lot of the dots in the trail of torture connect here and around here. It wasn't on our agenda when we started, but when we discovered that, we just couldn't keep quiet about it, and so we have become a voice for it. And this work for accountability for torture as a way of preventing its recurrence is likely to take a long time. That's what's been true in other countries. It takes a long time to get accountability for torture. It's a long struggle. So we just got to keep it up. And we have been keeping it up once we learned about it. So that's a success that we have seen where we're at, discerned what's going on around us, and applied our values to it and kept it going. Is somewhat related to that, we've had to become aware of and kind of mindful of so much of what I call violence within the military there's has a lot of publicity about the record-breaking number of G.I. suicides that's uh, happened here as well as other military bases. And along with that, you have sexual assaults, enormous number of sexual assaults against women soldiers, but also some against male soldiers. There's domestic violence, family members, and there's even a lot of violence among people who are not family members. And again, this is reaping what we sow as far as I'm concerned, the war coming home. But it is something which really wasn't on our agenda when I got here. But there were these terrible things that happened right here around Fort Prague which put it on our agenda and we've done a number of kinds of things to respond to that so far and we'll probably be doing some more. I guess what I'd say with regard to successes is to be aware of and discerning about the situation that we're in here. and really taking Fanville as kind of a microcosm of an, a militarized society that we're in, and being able to respond with what we've got. I mean, our budget is relatively small, our staff is small. We're not trying to build an empire here, but here we are, and we've got as much resources and staff as we have, let's do as much as we can to respond to the things that we see going on, particularly around military stuff. And, Those are all in addition to our GI hotline, which started before I got here and is going great guns as I prepare to move on. That's kind of the steady state sort of thing that we've just kept on doing. But then we've had to deal with other things as well because of the way our wars have developed. And as I'm preparing to leave now, just the last few months, we discovered, and actually Quaker House in our last newsletter, we broke the story. We discovered that there's a drone base at Fort Bragg so drone warfare, which is becoming more and more important, here again, Fort Bragg is right in the middle of it, and so we're taking that on. Now, what we're going to do about that, besides reporting on it, I don't know, because I'm probably not going to be here. But my successors, I'm sure, are going to have to pay attention to drone wars, because it's it's really getting to be a bigger and bigger part of the war machine. And, And it's also, drone warfare embodies the spirit of secrecy that goes with the spirit of war today. I'm worn out my 11 years here, but uh, it's also been, I felt, well used. At, uh, this is a place where a Quaker who's concerned about war and peace issues, well, plenty to do. Now, there's really plenty to do for war and peace in plenty of other places in most meetings, too, if you look around and really do some discernment. But I understand that up next door to a huge military base, these things are going to be more visible and in some ways more accessible.
0: So where you go from here? I mean, are you just going to play around? Is it twenty-four hour partying? What's the plan after leaving Fayetteville?
2: Well, I'm not a southerner, but one thing I found out about Carolina, I say that North Carolina is like mildew; it grows on you.
0: <laughs> That's a sad statement. Okay.
2: I also noticed after I was here for several years, when after I got here, I'd say. In North Carolina, they do this and they do that. And then I began to notice, and I don't know exactly the date, but then I began to notice that I was saying, in North Carolina, we do this and we do that. And I got to have this strange affinity for things like grits. In fact, I had some grits today. So I'm going to be staying in North Carolina. I'm going to move from Fayetteville to the city of Durham, which is a really interesting town. I'll be settling there, but... I'm going to be resuming full time what is my overarching personal vocation, and that's being a writer. I mean, I'm a writer. I've had a writer's career. Most writers, most published writers, have done either one other thing to make a living or a variety of things to earn a living, and I've done a variety of things. Now I'm going to be. Uh, succeeding or I'll be appointed to, uh, I like to call it the first Tom Fox Memorial Professorship of Quaker writing and agitating. Uh, You know it by another name. It's called Social Security. (laughs) I'll be collecting Social Security and I'm going to learn to live simply on it and I'm going to be writing things. I've I've done plenty of writing here, but it's mostly been focused on peace issues and fund appeal letters and newsletters and that sort of thing for Quaker House. And freed from that those tasks, I hope to write some, I don't know, maybe some more. I've written two Quaker mystery novels. I'd like to write some more. There's some Quaker history stuff I'm interested in, I want to explore and write about.
0: Ghost stories. Oh, yeah. Don't forget that. Yeah. Bible study. I've, done
2: lots of, I've got lots of things that I want to write about, so we'll see what Comes to the top and has to. I mean, I have to do some priorities. I expect one way or another to be expressive myself and putting that in the mix among Quakers. I think there's lots of lots of issues besides and lots of interesting things beyond focus, peace work. Quakers could have a good time with and learn from and contribute to. So, I want to be a writer.
0: I have no doubt but that you'll be contributing to the welfare of not only Quakers but the larger society significantly. I can't imagine you sitting too still. I I know you as a deep thinker for the 30 years or so that I've followed your writings and your activism, your passionate nature, your humorous nature, and the fact that you're both devoted and a bit irreverent really makes it engaging to follow you so me (laughs) i thank you so much for all of that work and especially for these 11 years when you served at quaker house there in fayetteville north carolina i really think you've made a tremendous difference on the side of good things so thanks for joining me for spirit in action well thanks for having me here the theme music for this program is turning of the world performed by sarah thompson With every
1: voice